Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Uh, my name is Sharon Chapman, and I'm the director of the Living Free in Christ Ministry here at Emmanuel Faith. And I'm going to read uh, Philemon 1 through 11 for you this morning. From Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and from Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and worker with us, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, a worker with us, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear about the love that you have for all of God's holy people and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that the faith you share may make you understand every blessing that you have in Christ. I have great joy and comfort, my brother, because the love you have shown um, to God's people has refreshed them. So in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what is right, but because I love you, I am pleading with you instead. I, Paul, an old man now, and also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, am pleading with you for my child Onesimus who became my child when I was in prison. In the past, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful for both you and me. This is the word of of our Lord. Well, good morning. Good morning and a special good morning to my chapel folks over there and to anyone joining us online. It is so good to have you. It is really good to be here today. We are going to start a brand new series. It's a very short series because it's a very short book. In fact, it is the third shortest book in your Bible and I'm going to want you to turn there. And so it's in the New Testament you got to turn your Bible the right way. It's in the New Testament. Somewhere in here, you're going to see a bunch, of, a bunch of T, Thessalonians, and Timothy, and Titus. And then you're going to hit Philippians. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Okay? But you might miss it because it's just one page in my Bible. 335 words, 25 verses. And yet, I'm pretty sure we can spend about 4,000 words talking about it at least two times up here. Because there is a lot in this, in this book. This little letter is a wonderful, wonderful letter. There's a lot in this. This is the only letter of Paul that doesn't mention the cross or the resurrection. It's a very personal letter. This letter was written to a man named Philemon. And you just heard the first half of it. He's writing for a very particular reason, and, and, but you've got to remember, in, in studying letters, okay, when these letters of Paul, we call them books sometimes, but it's, it's a letter that was written. We've got to remember that we're really reading someone else's mail, right? And we just have one side of the conversation. I was explaining that to a student once, and uh, they said, hey, thanks. <laughs> I was explaining that to a student once, and they said, uh, that sounds like mail fraud, and I said, well, no, not, not really. So I tried a different tact. I said, it's kind of like listening in on one side of, the, of a phone call conversation. And he said, well, that's creepy. And I said, all right, well, either way, it's an important concept to understand that we can only see part of this. 
right? And so we have to do a little bit of digging to figure out what's going on here behind the scenes, what the context is, and that's what we're going to do together today. Uh, there's three main characters in, in this book, okay? There's, there, there's, of course, there's the author, Paul. Okay, he, begins, he begins by saying that uh, he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And just to be clear, he's not saying that metaphorically. He is literally in prison somewhere. Okay? Most likely, he's in Ephesus, about, about 80 miles away from where this letter was sent. Apparently, sometime while he was doing time there in Ephesus, he met a runaway slave. This runaway slave's name was Onesimus. And Onesimus is mentioned in the letter because this letter was written, in a sense, on the behalf of Onesimus for his sake. But it's written to a guy named Philemon. Now, this is just mind-boggling to me because sure enough, uh, Paul, in a prison, meets a runaway slave. Now, we don't know how many runaway slaves came to Paul, but this runaway slave happened to be someone who ran away from his slave owner who happened to be converted by Paul at some point in the past. So Paul knew this person. And here, in this letter, Paul, uh, Paul is asking Philemon for something very particular. He's asking this Philemon, this, this, this rather wealthy landowner, who the, the church actually meets in his home there in Colossae, He's asking him something very particular. It's like I said, it's the most personal letter that we have from Paul. It's not written to correct any false doctrine like some of the other letters. It's not written to tell us, you know, how to do church. It's written. It's written to to ask Philemon to free a slave. Philemon, will you let this slave go? In fact, uh, this slave may have hurt you and and harmed you in some way, but I want to ask you that you forgive Onesimus and let him go. Set him free. But one of the most interesting things about this is the way that Paul goes about asking for this. And that's what we're going to dive into today in the first half of this letter. We're going to look at how he does this. And we're going to be getting at the why he does this. And so uh, the, the, the main request, okay, we kind of just got to it, barely got to it in our passage today. The main request that Paul asks starts in verse 8. Okay, so look on with me. In verse 8 it says, Accordingly, though I am... Bold enough in Christ to command you. In other words, he's saying, I am an apostle. Remember that, okay? Uh, I could command you to do the right thing. To do what is required, he says. Verse 9. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, uh, clearly, he became his spiritual father. That here, Onesimus was converted while he's in prison. Now, verse 12 begins the request. Okay, but we just got to set the context and see what exactly he's asking for. Why is he writing on behalf of Onesimus? He says, I am sending him back to you. Okay, now... 
the idea completes itself at the, about the middle of verse 15. Okay? If you kind of look down, he says, okay, he's saying, I, I'm sending him back to you so that you might have him back forever. And get this, no longer as a bondservant, better translation of that word is slave, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. This is a huge request. He's saying, hey, Philemon, uh, take back your slave that ran away. And, and by the way, maybe stole something in the process. We don't know. But take him back. And instead of punishing him like you would a slave, I want you to actually love him like a brother and give him his freedom. This is Paul's request. And yet he does so in the most understated way. He does it in this subtle very gentle request. And you'll, we'll get to look at the, the way he does it a little more next week. But now in this message, we're going to look a bit at how Paul sets this all up. Because I'm convinced that, that what may look at first like an innocuous little letter, an unimportant one single page in our Bible, it may look like that, that in this This is something powerful. It's a super profound statement about the anatomy of forgiveness. About how the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. In fact, even in this little letter, the scholar N.T. Wright would say this way. He says, even if we only had the letter to Philemon, if that was the only evidence of first century Christianity, we possessed, we would know that something quite dramatic and remarkable had taken place because nobody in the ancient world was thinking quite like Paul is thinking here. There is something powerful going on, something very different. And to understand that, we have to look back at how he sets this up. And uh, the, the, the key to this is in verse 6, but I'm going to start you in verse 4. I thank my God, he says, always remembering, always when I remember you in my prayers. It starts like we hear lots of Paul's letters starting with thanksgiving. But don't miss this because this is important. He says, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. In other words, I hear that you, Philemon, are a strong man of faith. You have faith. That's good. Now he says, verse 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Now wait there, wait there. That the sharing of your faith may become effective. Now, when we hear this phrase, sharing of faith, we might be tempted to think that Paul's now talking about something else. That now Paul is talking about, you know, something like going out on the street and sharing your faith or, or, or talking with a coworker about Jesus. Okay, all very good things. But Paul hasn't changed the subject here. What Paul is doing is saying something very particular. He's saying, I want you to share your faith. I pray that you share your faith in a very particular way. I pray you share your faith by forgiving Onesimus. He's already started. He's already started his request here. You see, faith and forgiveness goes hand in hand. It takes faith to forgive. And actually, one of the entrances into faith is 
saying, I, I, I'm sorry, I need forgiveness. And so they are inseparable. In fact, there's a great little scene in, in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. And Jesus is telling the disciples, the apostles this. It says, for if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. This is his instruction to us as believers. And they get the point because look what the apostles say. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's going to take faith to do that. We can't just go around forgiving everybody. I'm going to need faith to do this. They get it. And this is exactly what Paul is pointing out. He's recognizing you have faith. And because you have faith, I want you to forgive. Like he was saying, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. May it, may it do something. May it be useful. May it be used in people's lives for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. In other words, as you do, as you share your faith, specifically through forgiveness, that's the opportunity where you can gain the full knowledge, the, the experiential knowledge of all the goodness that we have in Jesus. This is huge. If I could summarize the principle that Paul is suggesting here, it's very simple. And that is that forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people, we forgive people. It's just what we do. It's, it's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's the first a recognition that we have been forgiven. But then it's taking the forgiveness and passing it on to others. We, we share our faith as forgiven people by forgiving people. And one of the first Christian sermons ever preached, it's recorded in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, Peter invites the crowd. He looks out to them and says, repent. Okay, ask for forgiveness. He's saying, repent. And he says this phrase, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. I love that phrase. When we repent, our sins will be wiped out. And we have assurance of this. John says it this way, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will, what is it? Forgive. Did I hear you in chapel? Good. He will forgive. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We have confidence that we have been forgiven. And if you're out there today and you need that confidence, I just want to ask you, is today the day when you need to repent and turn to God? Because he will wipe away your sins. And then you can join in with us as forgiven people. Forgiving people. That is what it's about. 
Today, it's my goal to, to really, though, ask the why of forgiveness. Why is it that we forgive? And so, why is it that forgiven people forgive? And first, the, the first point is really, in a sense, it's just a restatement of the main idea. Why do we forgive? We forgive because God first forgave us. That's why we forgive. We're taking it and passing it along. You see, uh, it's interesting that offering others forgiveness is just not really an option, right? In fact, it's baked into the, to the prayer that Jesus taught us, he, right? Remember, he says, forgive us our debts as, what is it? As we forgive our debtors, right? It's, it's, a, it's a both and. We look to God for forgiveness as we are forgiving others, Forgiven people forgive people. That's how we share our faith. But remember, we don't forgive people because we are better than them. We forgive people because we're forgiven. As Romans 5 puts it, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because we were good enough. It's because we earned it. It was while we were sinners. That is when Christ took the initiative to offer us forgiveness there on the cross. And so, that's why we forgive, because he forgave us first. The fact of the matter is, We weren't forgivable. Forgiveness has always been God's God's way. And it's always been God's heart. He was always in the business of forgiving the unforgivable. The people who hadn't earned forgiveness, who hadn't figured it out. This has always been God's heart from the very beginning. In fact, I want to take you there. I think the best example that we have of God's initial reaction to sin is the way he responds to the first sin. Because back in the Garden of Eden, you can turn to page 3 if you really wanted to, you could see it. But in Genesis chapter 3, we have the, the story of the very first sin ever committed. When God Almighty, in all perfection, confronts sin for the first time, You remember the story, probably, but it it involves a serpent tempting Eve to take an apple or a fruit of some sort and eat it. The The one thing that God said, don't do. And she does it. She hands it next to... To the guy that's standing right next to her the whole time. They both eat it. And it says this phrase. It says that they both realized. They realized there was a problem. They actually realized that they were, they were naked. And they felt shame for the first time. And then this statement is said that is quite possibly the saddest statement in the entire Bible. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves from God. They clearly did not know who God is. (laughs) They didn't understand the concept because here they are hiding from God. So sure enough, 
this is where we get a glimpse of God's heart. Because the next words, in fact, the first words to sinful people. First words to sinful people. It says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? I can't believe you've ruined everything. Look what you've done, you little jerk. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. That's, I think that's what we expect. That's what we expect God to say. We expect God to say, ah, I can't, I can't be around you anymore. But that's not what he says. Look at, look at what he says. Where are you? Hey, I'm here for you. Come on out. And now, just to be very clear, um, when Jesus asked the question, or sorry, when God asked the question, where are you? Do you think that God is looking for new information? He knows exactly where they are, right? He's saying that because what he's offering is himself. He's offering forgiveness already. This is God's heart and it is God's ways. And so this has always been his heart. It's always been his way. This is why it was Jesus's heart. It's Jesus's way. And this is why Paul is telling Philemon, this is how you live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. You offer forgiveness. So right there in the garden, God begins putting together his rescue plan that involves Jesus on the cross. But I want you to notice something here. That once again, Paul's, Paul's appeal, his gentle encouragement to Philemon is not is not a request based on how great Onesimus is. He's not saying, hey, hey, Onesimus has done just such a great job, so, you know, he deserves this. In fact, Paul's entire argument revolves around how good it will be for Philemon. He even uses a little play on words with Onesimus' name. Onesimus, his name means useful. And so that's what's going on in verse 11. He says, formerly he was useless to you. It's kind of a wink and a nod to his name. He was useless to you, and now he's indeed useful to me and you. He's living up to his name, that he is useful. Beautiful, beautiful statement. But even there, Paul's point is, Philemon, you should forgive Onesimus because it will be good for you to forgive him. And that really gets at one of... The, the main ideas of forgiveness, because while forgiveness inherently involves someone else who has done something wrong to us, forgiveness is not necessarily for the sake of the other. In fact, oftentimes, and instead oftentimes, we forgive to free ourselves. That actually, in forgiving, we are freeing ourselves not just the other person. Let's face it, the other person may not even accept it. And so, yes, forgiveness is a way of sharing our faith. And at the same time, forgiven people, we forgive people to free ourselves. To free ourselves from holding on. Because isn't this the way? You ever been in a situation where you've been just so angry? 
and so mad because someone has done something to you? I don't have to ask that question because I know you're human. We all have. We've been in places where it's just consumed us. It's become all we think about. It's all we want to talk about, right? And it can be a huge burden. What Paul's getting at here is that in forgiveness, having the faith to forgive is the way to let go and to find freedom. I think it's what Paul's getting at in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Aren't those the things that happen because of unforgiveness? We get bitter, we get angry, and even rage can come out. He says, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Saying the same thing here. Hey, forgiven people, forgive people. That's, that's what we do. We don't know what kind of bitterness, anger, and rage that Philemon had towards Onesimus for what he did it, but I do know, I can be, we can be very sure that as soon as Philemon did forgive Onesimus, he felt freedom. Now, I think we can be pretty sure about that because I don't think we'd have this letter if, if, if Philemon read it and said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Because then he probably would have just thrown it away, right? Um, I, I think we have this letter because this is probably exactly what happened. That Onesimus became his brother and was freed. You see, we don't forgive people, though, because they deserve it. You get that? We, we don't get forgive people because they deserve it. In fact, um, to be very clear, um, forgiveness is only an option when someone doesn't deserve it. Hey, think about that. <laughs> forgiveness is only an option when someone does not deserve to be forgiven. If someone thinks that they deserve to be forgiven, that means that they just don't think that they were wrong <laughs> in the first place. That, that means that, that they think there's a misunderstanding, and that's very different than forgiveness. This is why you can't ever say, haven't I done enough to earn your forgiveness? You can't ever say that. It doesn't make any sense to say, don't I deserve forgiveness? I hate to tell you, deserves got nothing to do with it. They're, just, it does, they're not together. It doesn't, it's not the same thing. You cannot earn forgiveness. You can only admit that you were wrong. And in fact, as soon as you do, you're a lot closer to recognizing, to, to gaining forgiveness. Can't deserve it because forgiveness is only an option when someone doesn't deserve it. Now, I believe this statement fully. This makes sense to me. And yet, brings up a pretty big question in my mind about this letter in particular. Because here we have a situation that seems a bit backwards. Because it actually seems to me that Onesimus actually does deserve freedom. Here, we have to remember, this is Paul 
requesting very gently that a slaveholder sets a slave free. Now, my, my question just simply is, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't, shouldn't Paul be asking that, that, that the, the slave forgive the slaveholder for mistreating the slave, for even being a slaveholder in general? I mean, don't we live in a world today when all the, all the stories, all the heroes are the ones who have run away from slavery? In fact, we, we, are, we are a country founded on freedom. We want that. So this is a good thing that he's run away. He found freedom. Why in the world would Paul be sending him back to this evil institution? Hmm. Shouldn't Paul use this as an opportunity to condemn slavery once and for all? In my mind, this would have been a great time for Paul to wax eloquently about the inherent worth of Onesimus as a human being made in the image of God. I wish he would have gone to the same and elaborated more on this, the, the, this concept that he brings up in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. Oh, how I wish that Paul would have kept going on that. It would have been great if he would have just put an end to slavery right then and there. So I want to take you on just a little, just a little tangent here that I think is very important. It's not in your notes, but the tangent has to do with this question. Why didn't Paul explicitly condemn slavery right then and there? Why didn't he do that? I want to give you, I want to give you four reasons not all of them are, are, are perfect reasons. They're just not. But the first one is it, it, it was not as evil as the American version. Okay, Because in, in our head, we have ideas of, of, of the, the sad history of, of American and, and European slavery. That was, that was awful. It, it, was, it was sadly the worst, some of the worst that the world has ever seen. Because especially because it was, it was mixed in with an overt racism that was terrible. It brought out the worst in humanity. It really did. Slavery then was not quite like that. In fact, it could have been quite a lot better. I mean, it wasn't like people were, you know, volunteering to be slaves. But even there's an example in uh, Abraham. When, when Abraham is told that he's going to have, he's going to have this great nation and he's going to inherit all this land, it, what he actually assumes is that that's going to be through his slave, Eliezer, who's a part of his family. Okay, th- this is a different relationship that he has. Okay, the second one, and these are kind of quick, but it, it was the way society, just, it's just the way society worked. Okay, it very much was. In fact, it was like the air that they breathed. It was very much built into the way that it worked. And, and here is Paul, who has a lot of authority in the church. But the church is a very small segment of society at the time. So Paul does not have authority to abolish something that is so much bigger and pervasive in the world. And in fact, some have said that it would be like saying and trying to abolish the automobile. How many of you came 
to church today in some form of automobile? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, okay, yeah, right? It would be like saying, okay, none of that. It would change the, the very nature of society. So maybe that's one of the reasons why he didn't. The other one is that there was a bigger slavery problem that Paul was facing. There was a much bigger slavery problem. And this was a spiritual slavery that we all face. In fact, this term of slavery was, was, a, was one of the key metaphors that Paul used about sin. That if sin is, if we're enslaved to sin, then guess who the slave master is? It is Satan. And so there was a real problem there. But then, I think another reason is that the Bible was already very clear on the issue of slavery. That actually, although some have tried, you cannot justify slavery using the scriptures. You just cannot. It is not possible. I think we sometimes forget how much of this book is actually about slavery. It is actually about freedom from slavery. You've got to remember that this book was written by former slaves. It was written by former slaves who then later, uh, later end up becoming slaves. The Assyrians and the Babylonians forced them into slavery again. So they have a long and terrible history of slavery. They hated slavery. And it's actually quite clear. And I, I, I know that. I came across a very relevant example of this um, back when I was visiting the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., in fact, my, my family was there, we all were there, and oh my goodness, this, I was like a, a kid in a candy store, man. I, there's so many Bibles, there are Bibles everywhere. I could stay there for days, just looking at Bibles and, and studying them. But, but one in particular stood out to me. And, and one was very, very appropriate for today. It was called the Slave Bible. And notice this, it says, parts of the Holy Bible selected for the use of, of Negro slaves. Parts of the Bible. What I realized is that they were redacting the Bible. And, and you know why they were redacting the Bible? And that is because this is a very dangerous book. It's a very dangerous book, especially if you want to oppress people, if you want to be in power over people, if you want to lord it over people, then this is a dangerous book. You want to make sure that people don't get their hands on this book if you want power over them, because this book is about freedom. And so they redacted the word of God. This is a sad, sad statement. Here was a display that they had. It says, of the total number of verses, the slave Bible is missing 90% of the Old Testament. 50% of the New Testament. Okay, guys, remember, there's, there's a book about exodus from slavery, right? In fact, we wouldn't want to give them the Psalms. We took out, they took out the Psalms. We wouldn't want them to have songs to sing about, about freedom. So we're just going to take them out. You can't have the verse I just read. And look at this one, Deuteronomy 20, 23, 15. Thou shalt not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master. In other words, hey, if, if someone comes to you as a runaway slave, you don't have to turn them in. 
Paul's not doing this because he had to. My assumption is he's doing this because Onesimus wanted to. He had clear scripture reference to say he didn't have to. There's something else going on here. These might be some good reasons that Paul and the other biblical writers didn't just outright condemn slavery, but the truth is that I still wish they had. <laughs> However, there was a, uh, there was a student of, of Paul Jewett. Okay? He's an anonymous name. They don't, Paul didn't, I guess, remember this guy's name, um, but a student came up to him when he was teaching this. He was a, a theological student in Zimbabwe, and this is what he said. He said, slavery is a system of bossing people around. If Paul had bossed Philemon, the slave master might submit and grudgingly free Onesimus. But, get this, the principle of domination would still be intact. And slavery would spring up again inside the church in more ways than one. Instead, Paul subverts the entire system of domination by appealing to Philemon's free decision to act in a manner consistent with equality and love between brothers and sisters in Christ. What Paul does here is masterful. It's, it's like the, the old principle of, of teaching a man to fish, right? It's like the moral equivalent of that. Like, right, you, you can give a man a fish and he can eat for one day. You can teach a man to fish, and he can eat for a lifetime. What, what Paul's doing here is saying, I can tell you what to do, and you'll do the right thing now, or I can teach you how to do it, and then you might live the right way for the rest of your life. This is what he's doing here. So, he is not forcing his way on him. He's inviting him to share his faith. It's not something we can demand because we forgive as an act of love, not an obligation. We don't forgive because we have to. It is an act of love. But let me be clear. It's an act of love. It doesn't have to accompany a feeling of love. You don't have to feel like, oh, I love this person so much, so I'm going to forgive them. In fact, it's often the exact opposite, right? It's often the people that were just... We're mad at, we're angry. Anger isn't the sin, it is sinning while you're angry. Anger that leads to sin. So you don't have to feel love, but that's what the act of love is. And that's that's what we're called to. That's what Christian love is. As you trust Jesus and live out in love others, uh, in love of others, forgiveness is how we live it out. It's how we become agents of God's forgiveness. So the willingness to forgive is supposed to be a natural byproduct of the experience of God's grace. It's just supposed to flow out of us. When God's grace comes into us, forgiveness is supposed to be spread out to all of us. And this is important because it's the most countercultural thing that you can do. In fact, it's not just counter to our culture. This is counter to every culture. This is counter to human cultures of all kinds. Forgiveness is powerful. And that's why, that's why it's sharing our faith. Because the last thing is, the last reason at least why, is we forgive in order to point people to Jesus. We forgive to point people to Jesus. Forgiving people 
forgive people, and they do so to point people to Jesus. Now is where you might be thinking to yourself, but wait a minute, Josh, isn't forgiveness just this thing between me and God? Right? Isn't it, you know, me and God and maybe the other person, okay, fine. But how is that pointing people to Jesus? And all I I want to point you to is, is just to suggest that that's not the way Paul thinks about forgiveness. And how do I know that? Look back at verse 1 and 2 and just notice who this is written to. So here, um, Paul is writing not just to Philemon. It is also written to Aphia, our sister, which is maybe Philemon's wife. We don't know. The Archibus, our fellow soldier, maybe this is Philemon's son. So sure, now he's air, you know, airing his dirty laundry in front of his whole family. Great. Thank you, Paul. But not only that, it goes, keeps going. And the entire church that meets in your house. This is, this is not just a personal thing. This is a church thing. Paul's saying, I want you to forgive because that's sharing your faith. And it's going to point people to Jesus. This is, you can be an example to people around you when you forgive. Faith must go from being this merely personal, private thing into becoming a social and communal and family thing. That's what faith is. And that's what forgiveness is supposed to be. And this can be true with forgiveness in and of itself. But as we see, we're going to see a bit more next week. When forgiveness turns into a restored relationship, when forgiveness turns into reconciliation, that is when, that's when the real power comes. Because forgiveness that results in reconciliation is a blessing that the world can see. It's a blessing that the world can see. Because you, you guys, wait till you see the end of this. Wait till you see what Paul's hope is in this. His hope is that these two people from radically different sides of the, of the economic spectrum, of the social spectrum, would come together as equals. And what a statement that can be to the world. What a statement of God's love that can be. Now, let me be clear. Forgiveness doesn't always lead to reconciliation. I'm not saying that. There may be abusers who have hurt you. And, and I'm not saying you need to go back and have a relationship with them. That's, that's not what we're saying. But, but when it can, and when it does, and when it's safe to do so, it can be powerful. I want to end with one story. It's a personal example of actually slavery and restoration. Happened to my great-great, so my great-grandmother, I called her Nana. She grew up in Armenia, and she went through the Armenian Genocide, where um, about a million Armenians were slaughtered, were killed. And Nana was a, a, a young child at the time. She saw many people killed. She had, to, she had to live and hide in between dead bodies at some parts. I mean, she told us stories after stories as kids, and, uh, and I remember whenever she would, whenever we'd start getting angry and mad at the, at the, especially at the Turks that did this, she would say, no, 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 in her thick Armenian accent, you have to pray for the Turks. She went through so many things that I don't have time to go into. Terrible, terrible circumstances. But at one point, her, she, she ended up living with a Turkish family. Actually, a Turkish family kidnapped her and took her in as a slave. 
She worked for them. She says um, after she left, they had to hire three people, but she was taken away from them, fortunately. She would say that she worked for them for nothing. She ate crumbs, and they abused her. She didn't talk about what they did to her, but I can only imagine. Sure enough, years later, miraculously, she made it to the States. She was living in Lowell, Massachusetts at the time. She had been married, and she started a family, and she gets a knock at her door from a, a very old Turkish woman. And it happens to be the very Turkish woman that had enslaved her back in Armenia. She had made it to America and she was now destitute. She was in poverty. She didn't know what to do. So sure enough, because my great grandmother had met Jesus in a German orphanage run by German missionaries, she realized that she was forgiven. And you know what she did? She forgave. Because forgiven people forgive. And for the rest of that woman's life, my Nana secretly gave her money. Helped her. Restored her. And do you know what that does? You know what that story does? It, it points people to something bigger and greater and more powerful than any of us. It points to Jesus. And so let's be people who forgive. You don't have to write this in. What is it that I need to do? Who is it that I need to forgive? Or maybe I need to just stop, stop trying to say I, I deserve forgiveness. You just can't. And accept it. But who is it? Let me pray. Lord, you're good to us. You've loved us. You've shared your forgiveness with us. Now give us the faith to forgive because forgiven people forgive. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.